Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Now, this is the second week of our sermon series in focus. So we take the first three or four weeks of every year and we um, want to remind ourselves of the vision of our church, want to remind ourselves why we're here, and then what our goals are for 2021. And so um, last week we looked at how we are a family of faith, and this week that we're looking at how we are a family that is following Jesus. So I want to invite you as we um, begin this time together by sharing something very special and very personal. I want to talk to you about my dad, Jay Young. Now, some of you have heard me talk about my dad in the past, especially when I start new men's groups. I, I, I talk about my father as a model of someone who has been following Jesus for a long time and how the trajectory of your life can change. My dad was an amazing man. Uh, my mom and dad led me to Jesus, and my dad changed the trajectory of our family legacy. He essentially broke three generations of alcoholism, abuse, neglect, and divorce. And it all ended with my father. And I actually went back this past week and I I watched the eulogy that I gave for my dad um, at his celebration service. And I was just reminded like hundreds of people showed up at his funeral. The room was packed and we just heard story after story about how my father had impacted so many people. And the question is, how did a man like my dad have such an impact? And I want to tell you why he did. And I want to then invite you to look at his favorite text of scripture, which is what we're looking at today. You see, in April of 1979, sitting in a red Volkswagen bug, my dad chose to follow Jesus. And my dad, at that moment, he tied his legacy with Jesus. And every event that followed, every relationship that he made, every prayer that he prayed, and everything that my father left behind, and in fact, everything that, that you guys are getting a chance to experience by being a part of Redeeming Hope, it has the ripple effects of, of my father's fingerprints in it. And it was because my dad chose to align himself with Jesus that he was able to leave a legacy that is reverberating through generations. And my friends, my dad's life verse is what we're going to be talking about today in Mark 8. And so um, while I wish that everyone watching could have been able to meet my dad, he would have loved to have seen Redeeming Hope thrive. He would have loved to have met you. And the moment that you would have been around my dad, you would have loved him. You would have loved the smell of cigar smoke and cologne. And um, I really think he would have seen many of you as his spiritual grandchildren. But I think that we can see a lot about my dad as we look to Jesus in Mark 8 and what Jesus looks like. And I think that we can learn a lot about what my dad taught me over the last two decades by looking at his favorite verse. And I want to challenge us today as we consider about what it looks like to follow Jesus. What if your legacy is not what you do between life and death, but rather who you follow? What if your legacy is not about what you do between life and death, but rather who you follow? And that leads us to our main point for today. You see, our church is a family of faith that is united by a common vision to follow the life and the teachings of Jesus. And when we follow him as our savior, we learn to die to ourselves and receive his life which changes everything about us. And we're going to look at essentially three 
points today. We're going to see how we are a family following Jesus, the Christ. We're going to see how we're a family following Jesus who suffered, died, and rose again. And then we're going to see how we're a family following Jesus into death and resurrection. So let's begin by looking at how we are a family following Jesus, the Christ. And that's where we come to Jesus in Mark 8. So let's begin here with Mark 8, 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Now, Jesus is asking a teaching question to his disciples. Essentially, as they're walking up to Caesarea Philippi, um, it was very common for the disciples to walk behind their master. And as they walked, he would teach. And so this was a teaching question. He's asked them, who do others say that I am? So some people said that um, the common folk said that Jesus was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was essentially a modern prophet. He was a healer. He was actually a forerunner of Jesus. He was designed to point people to Jesus. But some people were confused and thought he was John the Baptist. Others thought that Jesus was Elijah, who was the greatest prophet in Israel's history, who performed many signs and wonders. And then some people thought he was just one of the other prophets, one of the ancient prophets of old who were giving um, good wisdom. And so the crowds see that Jesus is important, but clearly they have no real insight into who Jesus truly is. And Jesus turns the question on his disciples and he asks them, okay, well, that's what the crowd says, but, but who do you say that I am? You see, obviously the crowd's answer is not quite enough. And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. Now, the word Christ is a very loaded term. It's not just the last name of Jesus. It's actually a title that means Messiah or Savior. And so um, what, what Peter is saying is that Jesus is the fulfiller of the Israelite expectation of a Messiah, of a Savior who would set the world right again. And that he's actually saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies that were promising a one who would come and save us from sin. And so in order to understand who he is, we have to see that Jesus is affirming himself as the Christ through Peter's words. He's saying that, yes, he is this promised Savior. And what Jesus is doing, and he's making a point here, he's making a stark comparison that Jesus is not simply a prophet. He is God incarnate. And so redeeming hope, when I say that we follow Jesus, we do not follow Jesus who is simply a prophet. He is not simply a good person. And he's not just simply a good example for us to strive after. We follow the God of the universe who became flesh and bone, the one way back to God, the singular savior of the human race, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus our Savior. So it's very clear that when we follow, we are a family following Jesus the Christ. Now, not only that, but we are a family that's following Jesus who suffered, died, and rose again. So um, we see that um, they, they just said, Peter just affirmed that Jesus is this long-awaited Savior. Now you would imagine, okay, great, now let's go out and let's go share this with all the world. Like this is the Messiah, this is the promised one, this is the one who we've been waiting for. But Jesus says these very strange words in Mark 8, starting in verse 30. He says, and he strictly charged them 
to tell no one about him. This is really weird. We're going to explain this here in a sec. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, who is another title that he refers to himself as, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. That's what the text says. So um, we got to ask this question. Why did Jesus tell the disciples not to say anything? Like, that wouldn't make sense, right? We'd think that, like, Jesus is God, Jesus is the Savior, and so we would want everybody to know that Jesus is the Savior. Well, I think it's really interesting here, because it's very clear that Jesus had a better plan than the disciples had in mind. And in order to understand this, we have to understand who some of the disciples were and what they believed about this Messiah who was to come. Now, Peter, who had just affirmed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, Peter was what was called a zealot. Now, the zealots were a Jewish faction who had opposed the Romans ruling over them. Remember, in first century, um, the, the Jewish people were oppressed by the Roman government. And what they did is they wanted to take up arms. The zealots, who Peter was one of them, wanted to fight against the Romans to fulfill this messianic prophecy, prophecy that there would be a savior. So what they did is that they wanted to define this savior, this Messiah, this Christ, as a mechanism to overcome the Romans. And so if they knew that Jesus was the Christ, what they would want to do is politicize Jesus. They would want to win a political overthrow of the government, and they would want to use Jesus to do so. Uh, that what, they, what they were thinking was that they had a very narrow view of the Savior who was going to save them politically and who was going to save them physically from Roman oppression. Now, this is very interesting because Jesus's public revelation of himself as Christ was so much more powerful than Peter could have ever imagined. And it was so much more impactful than anything that we could have ever planned in ourselves. So a couple weeks from Jesus having this conversation with the disciples on the road to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is betrayed. He is betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas. He is taken away in the middle of the night. He is beaten. He is put in chains. And then he has, he is at a mock trial. It was an unjust trial. It wasn't a legal trial where people were hurling accusations at him and they were beating him and striking him and mocking him all night long leading up to his crucifixion. And then we get to these words in Mark 14. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. My friends, this is amazing. In chains, blindfolded, at a false, secret, unjust trial in the middle of the night, in front of his accusers who were lying about him, the God of the universe willingly submitting to being locked up in chains. He is preparing for his final suffering. He is preparing for his substitutionary death. And that's when Jesus publicly proclaims that he is the Christ. That makes no sense, but in the arc of God's beautiful plan, it seems to make a perfect symphony. This is not the Savior that the Jews were looking for. This is a Savior in weakness, not strength. This is a Savior in submission, not power. This is a Savior in persecution, not authority. We would never have chosen this way, but because this is what marks our Savior. 
This is what marks our Messiah. This is what marks Jesus, suffering and rejection. Now, going back to our text in Mark 8, again, winding it back to three weeks before, three or four weeks before, when Jesus is on the road to Caesarea Philippi, and he is saying, don't tell anyone about this, because ultimately he had a better plan to reveal himself as the Christ. Jesus then gives his disciples the timeline. He tells them exactly what's going to happen. He says that he will suffer. He says that he will be rejected by all of the religious leaders and all of the people. And what's very interesting is that it is directly juxtaposed to the declaration of the previous verses with Jesus being the Messiah. So essentially, Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the one we've been waiting for. And then Jesus makes it very clear that he will not be recognized as Christ, but he will, in fact, be rejected by the religious elite. Next, it says that he will be killed. Now, this is where it would make absolutely no sense to the disciples. How in the world could a savior die? How can he save Israel if he's dead? How can he bring salvation if he's dead? But then Jesus clarifies, and he says, he will rise again. Jesus continues to clarify this. Every time he talks about his death, he mentions his resurrection as well. But it's, but it's like the disciples gloss over the fact completely, like it wasn't even mentioned. So, my friends, what this means for redeeming hope is that we follow Jesus who consciously knew that he was going to be rejected, who willingly walked into suffering and death, and who victoriously rose again on the third day to declare any and all who follow him free of sin. Now, not only that, but we are also a family following Jesus into death and resurrection. Now, um, we have to go back to Peter. Now, remember, Peter just confessed Jesus as the Christ, and then Jesus says, hey, guess what? Don't tell anyone, and in fact, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. Now, Peter just can't believe this. Remember, he's a zealot. He wants a savior who's going to save them from the Romans. He doesn't want this savior to die. So look at what Peter does here in these next verses. It says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus, rebu Jesus being rebuked by Peter. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. But turning aside and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of man. Now, Jesus rebukes Jesus by pulling him aside. Now, this means that Peter, who is supposed to be following behind Jesus, he walks up from behind him. He gets equal with his master. He then pulls him aside and begins to rebuke the very man who he just proclaimed to be the God and Savior of the world. Now, you can imagine, like, this makes absolutely no sense, and I can imagine what was probably, I can't imagine what was going on in Jesus' head right now, but it was probably pretty comical, right? Because he just said, hey, Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're God incarnate, and then the very next phrase did not align with what Peter wanted, and then he's saying, hey, you're wrong, you can't do this, you shouldn't do this. But we have to understand why Peter does this. You see, Peter wants a win, Suffering, rejection, and death didn't fit into what he thought winning looked like. And in his anger and in his desire to see his version of God's kingdom come, Peter lost sight of the true win, which was the salvation of all mankind. And what we see is that the salvation of mankind was only through the death, the suffering, and the resurrection of Christ. 
So Peter in this moment is fearful. And this is what actually motivates his rebuke of his master. That makes no sense with what he just did. But my friends, I want to ask us a question today. Isn't Peter's blindness our own blindness? I know I have difficulty with suffering. I have difficulty even seeing how suffering is producing something beautiful in my life. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all do at some level or another. So I want to ask us some questions as it relates to Christ. Are we comfortable with a suffering Christ? Can we be comfortable with a Christ who submitted to the authority of his oppressors in order that we may be saved? Are we comfortable with identifying with Christ's suffering, seeing that our pain is actually a mechanism of God's will and God's grace to us and to others? And are we seeking to use Jesus to accomplish some sort of political or social tool to usher in our own kingdom? Or are we following him as king and Lord, seeing everything else as far secondary? So here's the truth. We don't naturally want to follow Jesus into the death of our own will, our own agenda. But that is exactly what Jesus is calling us to do. And after Jesus rebukes Peter for saying this, what he does is then he calls the crowd around him. Look at what it says in Mark 8, starting in verse 34. It says, In calling the crowd to him with the disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, remember the first thing that Jesus says. He calls the crowd to them, if anyone would come after me. My friends, the call of Jesus is to follow him. That's what it actually means to be a disciple. Disciple equals follower of Jesus. So that's why we use this terminology, we are a family of faith that follows Jesus. We are a family of faith that are disciples. And so I just use that term following Jesus, that are followers of Jesus, because I just think that culturally makes more sense. Most often people don't understand the nuance of the term disciple, but everybody knows what it looks like to follow the life and teachings of someone else. And so to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus, it means to go where Jesus leads. It means to walk where Jesus walked, and it means to do what Jesus does. And then the question is, how do we become a disciple of Jesus? What does that look like? Well, what's interesting is that Jesus actually gives us a three-step process. It's right here in the text about what it looks like to be his disciple. And the first step in the process is to deny yourself. My friends, we all have an inclination towards self-protection and self-gratification. And so the call of the Christian, the invitation of Christ, is to deny the immediate to follow the eternal. It's to deny our own wants, our own means, in order to serve someone else. The second thing Jesus says is to take up your cross. Now, I want us to think about a first century Jewish person hearing these words. This was an instrument of death. And it wasn't this nice, happy message that many Christians today now wear around their necks or on earrings. This cross was a torture device. That's how they would have understand it. This is a mechanism of torture and death. And the closest thing that I could come to it in our modern culture was kind of a cross between waterboarding and an electric chair. That's what it was. It was torture and it was death. And so what essentially Jesus says 
is to take up your electric chair. That's what he's saying. That's a modern understanding of it. Take up your electric chair. Take up the instrument of death. Take up the cross. Embrace it. Bring it close to you. So my friends, the call of Jesus is to pick up your instrument of death. And what that means is to die to yourself. It means to die to your wants. It's to deny your needs. So he says, deny yourself, take up your cross. Actually, willingly embrace the things that are going to kill your own will in you. And then the third thing he says about being a disciple is to follow Jesus. He says, follow me. And my questions, uh, uh, my friends, I have a question for you as it relates to this. Where was Jesus going when he picked up his cross? He was going to Golgotha, the place of the skull. That's what that means. The place where he would ultimately be crucified and murdered, the place of his death. My friends, we are not called to pick up our cross to go into a field of flowers and dance around. We are called to pick up our cross and follow Jesus to Golgotha, to follow Jesus to the death of ourselves, to follow Jesus to the death of our selfishness, to the building of our own kingdoms, to our immediate self-gratification, to follow Jesus to the death of our comfort, the death of our complacency, the death of our fighting to do more, work harder, or be better. And my friends, this is what Jesus asks at the end. What does the whole world mean to you if you lose your true self? And your truest self is meant to follow Jesus and be united with God again. And so Jesus' death, we find, is the only way to true life. And my friends, Jesus wants you to thrive. Jesus wants you to have your deepest needs satisfied. Jesus wants you to have marriages that are unified and strong. Jesus wants you to have a singleness to be a source of contentment and not anguish. Jesus wants you to grieve your sin and run after his righteousness. Jesus wants you to follow him with your life and to experience his resurrection power in your life. And my question to you is, do you want that? I think we all could say we want to do those things. Then my friends, you have to go to Golgotha. You cannot get to the resurrection power of the empty tomb unless you go through the hard road of the cross. Jesus says, come and die. Why? So that you may live. You give up your life to gain it. And this is the upside down nature of Jesus's kingdom. Do you want newness of life? You go to the ancient of days. Do you want ultimate purpose? You submit to Christ's purpose for you. Do you want to gain your life? You lose it in Christ. And do you want to live? Then you must die to yourself. And here's the truth, Redeeming Hope. Our greatest work as a church is to die. Our greatest struggle will be to give up our own self-salvation efforts because in the core of who we are, we want to earn love. The, the, The love that is the hardest to receive is the love that we know we didn't earn. And the invitation of Jesus is to lay our lives down before the author of life so that he can give us his life. So when you seek your life, you lose it. But when you lose your life in Christ, you find it. In Redeeming Hope, we are a family following Jesus the Christ. We are a family following Jesus who suffered, died, and rose again. And we are a family following Jesus into death and then resurrection. Now, as we close our time together, you know, my dad quoted this last part to me so often. Oh my gosh, I can still hear it ringing in my head. 
what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? I don't think there was probably a, more than a day or two at a time where I did not hear him quoting that. And when he was dying, he couldn't speak barely at all. He had Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, is completely paralyzed, still mentally with it, but um, had very much difficulty communicating and couldn't move at all. And I remember when people used to come visit my dad, um, the, the rule was two things. One, you had to feed him coffee because dad, of course, couldn't hold anything, but he still loved coffee right to the end. And so you'd make him the strongest, bitterest coffee that you could and that he would sip it through a straw. So I'd have grown men, military men, hardened men that would come into our house and they'd have a cup of coffee and they'd feed it to my father through a straw. And then my dad would always ask them to read Mark 8. Yeah, it was what You could barely make it out, but he would always say, read Mark 8. Read Mark 8. My dad had us read Mark 8 to him almost every day before he died. And so in the email that was announcing my dad's celebration service after he died, this was kind of our public announcement that my father had passed. Um, I want to read you just an excerpt from that. And the subject line was, On the True Life of Jay Young. I'm sure many of you know him by now, but on March 29th at 7.19 p.m., Jay Young experienced victory over his battle with ALS. He had a difficult last few hours of life, but as with the way he lived, he was courageous, loving, and strong, even in his death. His last words to his wife and son were, I love you. As a man devoted to Jesus, he lived his life without regrets or compromise, faithfully serving his family and Jesus Christ, even during the difficulty of his last days. My friends, my question for you today is this. Do you want your children to say this about you? Do you want to leave a legacy where people look back on your life and see that you were faithful to Jesus to the last breath that you breathed? Most people define legacy as the decision one makes between life and death. And the idea is that kind of our cumulative efforts over time in business or relationships, they will determine how a man or woman will be remembered. My friends, dad's life overwrote this legacy of brokenness in our family history. He wrote a new story, penned with the ink of God's perfect story in his life. The curse was reversed in our family. Why? Not because of what dad did, but who dad followed. Dad followed Jesus. You see, my dad's life demonstrated a different definition of legacy. That legacy is not in the decisions you make between life and death, but rather the person you follow. And so with that, I want to challenge you. If you look over the course of your life today, and you can't find a place and time where you have put a stake in the ground and said, yes, I choose to follow Jesus, then I want you to do that today. I really want to compel you, like my father did in that April day in 1979, sitting in his Volkswagen bug. He gave his life to Christ, and his whole life changed. I would like to encourage you to believe in the work of Christ for you, to die to yourself, to commit your life to him so that you may thrive. You can believe today, this moment. You can pray. You can communicate with God. You can ask him, to be Lord and King over your life and receive the new life that Jesus offers you when you submit your life to him. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you today. Christ is your life. Christ is the ultimate good. And it can be so easy to be distracted from that with life, with busyness, with leaky faucets and um, cars in the shop and all the mundane things of life that want to press in and distract us from what real life is. When you have Jesus, when you cherish 
Jesus, when his life works in you as you submit to him in prayer and in sacrifice and in service. My friends, when all these things are evidence in your life, you will experience a resurrection power in your life. And this and momentary affliction, sufferings, pains, struggles, ALS, will only serve to remind you of the truth of Colossians 3.3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Redeeming Hope, our church, is a family of faith, united by a common vision to follow the life and the teachings of Jesus. And when we follow him as our Savior, we learn to die to ourselves and receive his life, which which changes everything about us. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.